It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here with lots of security news, including that nuclear code that was eight zeros. <laughs> and we'll talk about something called Bull Run, perhaps a threat to SSL security. Steve has the details next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 433, recorded December 4th, 2013. Breaking SSL. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support for all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit GoToAssist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com twit and use the code SN20. And by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to AudiblePodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy, your security, uh, your health and wellness online. Here he is, Mr. Steve Gibson, the explainer-in-chief. Mental and physical health yeah, and wellness. we do it all, yeah. from vitamin exactly. D to uh, honey pots and more. Oh, and we've got a variety today. We have... Uh, Launching nuclear weapons with the passcode of all zeros. I have an email uh, from somebody about this, somebody who oh, actually it, was it, there. It was a tweet frenzy uh, uh, all yeah. week about yeah. this. We have the annoying return of air gap jumping malware hysteria. Uh, I wouldn't say hysteria. That, that's overstating it. But but the people at Fraunhofer, the people who did the MP3 encoder, the original uh, you know audio psychoacoustic guys – uh, have demonstrated a, a network that functions, so that's freaked people out a little bit. We have the not-so-portable car killer. <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, uh, we have to talk about Amazon's, uh, Amazon's Prime Air service just briefly. Uh, and speaking of moving through the air, NASA actually has an, a, an experiment for a true warp drive, Leo. There's been a breakthrough wow. in faster than life and faster than light travel um i'm going to talk a little bit briefly uh, about a, a seasonal driven bedside quest of mine and a discovery that i want to share <laughs> uh two interesting kickstarter projects and then of course our main anchor topic is uh to talk about bull run we learned about bull run for the first time which is the NSA's code name for their breaking SSL project, their breaking encryption. How do we break the encryption of the internet? And and um, uh, Matthew Green, who's the cryptographer we've talked about often, who's at Johns Hopkins, um, he's been involved in a an alternative to Bitcoin called ZeroCoin, which I'll probably take a look at on the show before long. Uh, it's still evolving. Uh, but he pulled himself away from that because he wanted to get back to addressing sort of what he felt was a loose end, which is 
what could they be doing? You know, so he did this really neat sort of brainstorming tinfoil uh, blog post on Monday. And I thought that's it's a perfect foundation for us talking about what are the things that the NSA could be doing because they're they talked about, you know, like having compromised SSL and that, of course, upset everyone. And so we're going to take a look at at um, from Matt's post. What's possible? Good. Boy, there's a lot to do. <laughs> we also have uh, three fine advertisers who've decided elected to support this episode. With, well, uh, get one in now. Let's do, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's a good one for uh, anybody who watches this show because probably many of you have to do uh, software or hardware support. You might even be an IT professional. I know uh, the majority, in fact, I think, of Security Now listeners are in some IT capacity. Uh, that's why you ought to know about something called GoToAssist from our good buddies at Citrix. You probably already have heard of GoToAssist as a remote access solution, and it is an excellent I think the best used, most commonly used remote access solution. Uh, it's just fabulous. It lets you do up to eight sessions at once. So you can start and install on one machine and move to the next and move to the next. Uh, you can scan the machines and know what software, including security software, is running. You can also do unattended support, which is really handy. You don't have to wait till your client's around. Unlimited live end user support. But this is just the beginning, their remote support. In fact, what they've done is they've added two new tools that make GoToAssist the ultimate in cloud-based tool set for an IT pro. Service Desk, you got to have this to manage your tickets, your trouble tickets, but also uh, it allows you to manage problems, changes, releases, and you can create a branded knowledge center. Branded not with Citrix's brand, but yours, your own, so you can keep your staff and customers in the know. A full self-service portal. It'll also help you because they can look up answers to problems. They don't have to bug you. And it's got your brand on it, which is very nice. Complete configuration management. This is all part of the, the ticketing module. And then add to this the monitoring module. <laughs> really, they've beefed up GoToAssist if you haven't looked at it recently. The monitoring module lets you put a crawler on your client's system. It'll go through the network and look at everything hardware and software, make a complete inventory automatically, PCs, Macs, network equipments, everything, uh, with rich details on how everything's configured, audit software, gain actionable insights to bring systems into compliance, if you know what I mean. Get that LimeWire off of there. They also... They, <laughs> they don't use LimeWire anymore, but you get the idea. Uh, you, can, you can track network performance, and it does let you set up a... Uh, it has pre-configured uh, dashboard... Uh, but you can also set up your own custom alerts that will let you know, for instance, you know, a disk space falls behind uh, 5% or when new software has been installed without IT approval. or And you'll get your notification, uh, your choice, email, IM, SMS. Really is amazing stuff. And, of course, you can manage multiple sites. In fact, this is these are the tools that will turn you into a managed services provider. You might be using a similar tool. I guarantee you it costs more and does less. You've got to try GoToAssist, and you can do it free right now. You don't even need a credit card. Just visit GoToAssist.com for your special 30-day free trial. GoToAssist.com, click the Try It Free button, and uh, when it asks for a promo code, and I think it's a link that you have to open up. Let me see here. Yeah, you put your name and email and all that. You don't need a credit card, but I would like it if you'd put in the word security because that will let them know you heard about it on security now. And that's all I ask. 30 days free. Go to Assist if you're in IT. Oh, and don't forget to check all three modules so you get to try all three for free. Go to Assist. 
Com. Use our offer code security now. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte, and eight zeros. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, yeah. So, I, I, I mean, the idea of this is just so bizarre. The, you know, the, the story broke that for 20 years, the U.S. was, was protecting it, was, was, was using eight zeros as the so-called nuclear launch codes for the nuclear arsenal. And um, this came from a site called todayifoundout.com. Um, and, and, the, and the title of the posting was Nearly Two Decades Nuclear Launch Code Minuteman Silos, United States, was their, what was their deal. So the background here is that we originally had no protection for I mean, other than you know all of the sort of the the standard you know these things are not out on the street corner they're in in highly secure bunkers and and silos but uh j f k uh our u s president at the time in nineteen sixty two he put out a national security action memorandum one six zero which required that there be some Essentially, passcode, you know, password protection on nuclear weapons. I mean, and and that they be really functional. There, there, there are a thing called a PAL, a P A L, um, and that stands for Permissive Action Link. And uh, during my research, I found a really inter- I mean, a really interesting paper. Uh, you can see the link in the show notes, Leo, that, that www.cscolumbia.edu link um, where they they discuss what is known in the open community, you know, not triple top secret and so forth, about the whole PAL technology that is this whole notion of of controlling the accessibility, essentially, of a nuclear warhead's um you know explosion and and i mean and what's interesting about this i think is that well first of all wh- where the 0000000 came from was that the military commanders uh specifically the people at sac the strategic air command were miffed at the idea of the politicians telling them how to do their job so what we what we learn from the story is that is that shortly after the the politicians oversaw the the fitting of launch codes with this with the very first PAL technology, they reset the codes to all zeros. So so I mean so it is it it is apparently true that in that in fact for two decades, this this extra interlock, and I mean, this is not the op, the only way of uh, obviously getting to um, no. And in fact, uh, it, this you know arming and engaging to, these bombs. According to what I've read, it doesn't in fact engage the warhead. It merely allows the rocket to be launched, and there were separate codes for the warhead. In fact, we got an email from a guy who was running a silo. Um, 
his name is Joseph. I probably shouldn't give his last name. I, I think it's okay. He says, your story about the nuclear codes is ridiculous. I was a launch crew member on Titan II missiles in Kansas. Now, he said, Minuteman may be different, but our codes weren't numbers at all. They were letters. And I think the confusion, I've, I've asked him to clarify, is that the letters were used to arm the warheads. The numbers were used merely to launch the rockets. Uh, he says, as you can see in the photo and also in the manual, he sent me some pictures, which I'm going to show you. Also, there is my own set of launch keys I got from my site after deactivation. I've included the launch checklist and the entry for the code uh, ad in the BVL, the Butterfly Valve Lock. And he also has a picture of himself uh, at the 9 megaton warhead that he was uh, monitoring. Let me just show you some of these images. And I'll send these along to you so you can read them. Because it's been deactivated, uh, these are no longer. There's the Butterfly Valve Lock. Uh, and you see the, the, I think you can see uh, uh, where you would insert the key. I'm not sure. Here's where you'd enter the code. And uh, this is the manual. Here he is in front of his, what did he say, 9 megaton warhead. And there's the two keys. Remember, there are two keys. Each member of the combat crew, there's two of them, has to have a key to turn. And they must turn them simultaneously. And one person can't. They're separated enough so uh i think that's that's pretty cool um, okay so but there, but he talking, disputes it but i think we're talking about different things is what i think yes, i've asked him to that's, clarify that's just what yeah. i was going to say i'm absolutely certain that what this was was actually about the bomb being able to be detonated really um, all right yes in the documents they show schematics and talk about specifically how the the systems were designed and and what intrigues me is this is a classic security problem. Uh, and in fact, it was concern about our warheads being on foreign soil. I mean, like like deliberately on foreign soil where we it, it, it wasn't well, it started with this own... with the Cyprus problem uh, in this in the early 60s, 62, where uh, the fear was that NATO missiles would be used by by the combatants against yes. each other, even though yes. they're both in NATO. So, yes. And, and and so so this was meant to be an interlock that would prevent the 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 nuclear bomb from detonating. Now this story comes from 2004, as you know. So this isn't. A lot of people will say, and you'll get emails saying, "Oh, we've known about this for years." This was originally written about in uh, 2004. Yeah, and I'm just addressing the fact that it was the most tweeted Typical. thing I saw. This yeah, week. oh no, and, and it's it, a, was, it's, it got to be a big story. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but. From a from a security standpoint, this, I mean, this is the kind of thing we've talked about often. And think about the dilemma. The reason the the strategic air command um, commanders set this to all zeros is was their concern that they wouldn't be able to get a some random code when they absolutely needed it. And the point was, this wasn't the only thing you needed. Everything you just talked about with the two key interlocked, you know, being twisted at the same time, the stuff we've all seen in the movies, that was all in place too. So so we had a, we had, there was a whole series of, of things that had to happen. But the, the tension from a security standpoint is that you, you both absolutely never want there to be a mistake and the warhead detonates anywhere that, that you don't absolutely want it to. 
and that's in tension with the 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 idea that if you want it to you absolutely want to make sure that this huge list of things that all have to happen in order for that to occur all do so so i mean so you know there's a real problem you uh, again you 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 absolutely don't want a false positive but when you want it to occur you want to be sure that it's going to so it's really a dilemma and this one of the problems was solved by simply essentially zeroing out one of the interlocks you know actually on the physical weapon itself in this in this uh, columbia.edu paper they they really go into it's a fascinating paper for anyone who wants to read it i've got it in the show notes and by the way i do have the the, the show notes are already posted on grc I just tweeted the link a few minutes ago before we began the podcast, and I got a lot of great positive feedback from my posting of last week's notes. So I'm going to – that's what I will do from now on. Um, I wasn't always making sure – like I, sometimes I had people's email addresses and things in that I would never want to disclose by mistake. So I'll make sure that they're they're postable from now on. But um, anyway, it's really it's a fascinating. story. And not at all – to me, it, it made perfect sense. It's exactly what you – expect frankly it's kind of a pragmatic approach now of course we had bad bios and we talked about that a couple weeks ago um this this persistent rumor come belief whatever that you know one security researcher has been plagued by this weird bios that affects uh, or i'm sorry this weird malware that apparently affects is able to infect bioses and he believes jump into completely disconnected computers and the only channel he was able to find since it wasn't networked there was no bluetooth there was no wi-fi i mean it was it was air gapped you know is a term is that he believed that a laptop was still getting infected until he physically disconnected its microphone and speakers and then oh Thank goodness it was no longer, you know, <laughs> n- nothing was able to get to it. And it's like, oh, okay. And, you know, as, as we talked about it at the time, it's like, yes, in theory, except there are all kinds of problems with that idea. First of all, you know, the bandwidth is going to be low. You know, the, the microphone and speaker are really have narrow audio, you know, acoustic bandwidth ranges. So, you know, it's going to sound like a modem, you know, and so forth. So, so this all kind of quieted down. And then, unfortunately, we a, a story just surfaced a couple days ago about, as I was talking about at the top of the show, the, the Fraunhofer folks have developed a network that does this. That is, uh, you know, and, and they have a, a, an interesting diagram where they talk about it, it, it's, it's in, in Ars Technica and our friend Dan Gooden uh, posted this, the topology of a covert mesh network that connects air-gapped computers to the internet. And the reason you need a mesh network is that, of course, the distance is going to be extremely limited, actually far farther than you might think. They were the, the guys at Fraunhofer were able to operate 65 feet between two Lenovo laptops um, using the built-in microphone and speakers. Now, you know, reality begins to hit here. They were able to get 20 baud, um, that is 20 bits per second, which is not surprising because it is audio. And so you're going to have to have some sort of a carrier and, and 
it's, uh, you know, I guess they were able to get it out of audible range. So it was technically ultrasonic, but it had to be very low ultrasonic to still, you know, allow the microphone and speaker to function. But so, so, okay, yes, um, technically you can, you can use acoustics to allow two in proximity laptops to talk to each other to get greater distance then they use a mesh network which is to say the they essentially it's like the internet where one hops to the other hops to the other hops to the other so as long as there are any two that are or or as any as as long as there is any path where two are within distance then they can all be synchronized all be at 20 bits per second of of data rate, which is a little slow uh, in terms of contemporary networking technology. But again, all it can be used to do is allow previously infected machines to communicate. And that's the key. That And that's, you know, why I mean, it's not like an infected laptop at Starbucks is going to be able to reach out and propagate itself to all the other laptops within within 65 feet of it acoustically because you know <laughs> a microphone can't take over a laptop unless there's already an infectious agent you know something malicious in the laptop listening on the microphone for instructions so yes it could be used for persistent communications stealthful low baud persistent communications but you know not to just you know, reach out and take something over. As far as we know, as far as we know, there, you know, isn't any way that, you know, just whistling to a microphone can cause a buffer overrun and install code. And if so, it would, it'd be prohibitively slow. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Nothing now, to worry our, about. Nothing to fear. Yeah, nothing, nothing to worry about. Yeah. So yes, now we have some some sense of uh, if if anything, it gives us a sense of scale for what can be done in an acoustic network, if that were actually right. you know what was going on in this bad BIOS situation. Um, our the, the friend of the show uh, of the show Simon Zarafa, uh, in Wales, uh, sent me a link. Uh, call, he called it the portable car killer, of course, uh, playing off the the well known part of portable dog killer um, ex- experience in my youth. An episode that we did by that name. Um, however, this is not so portable. Uh, it is seven hundred and seventy two pounds, but it is a <laughs> a vehicle. It is. I mean, it is functioning. There's there's a company called E two V has developed this. It is a non-lethal device. Uh, maybe, well, unless maybe you have a pacemaker, in which case maybe it's not so non-lethal. Um, but it can shut down a vehicle at 165 feet, wow. at 50 meters. So basically, it is a it is a mobile EMP, electromagnetic pulse transmitter, that um, what, it, what it does is essentially it takes advantage of all of the technology that we have in contemporary vehicles. You know, if you had some old Rambler from the 60s, you know, it, that, 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 such, you know, an old school car would just ignore the electromagnetic pulse. 
but 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 the guys who developed this note that in the frequency band they're using, which they call the L and S band, the it's a contemporary car's wiring loom has runs of wire of about a meter, which make them a perfect antenna. And so they're able to to generate a signal from 165 feet away, which at that distance will essentially scramble the engine's um, management technology and cause the car to stop. And and the they're claiming that after their press release of this, they have had interest from 15 different countries and, um, I mean, like, you know, dramatic interest in, okay, <laughs> we want one. You know, where do we send our money? Uh, and so far, they've installed this 772-pound thing in a Nissan Navara and a, and a Toyota Land Cruiser. So, you know, just to make their their uh, demonstrations feasible. I have a picture of it and links in the show notes if anyone's curious. But, you know, nothing most of us have to worry about. And I have to say that it would unfortunately knock Amazon's Prime Air delivery uh, drone right out of the sky. It's pretty clear that it would scramble its <laughs> avionic. And you don't really want something that can be knocked out of the sky. No, Leo. I mean, actually, what I loved was Paul Therott's tweet. Paul tweeted, I think this was just yesterday. He said, he said, quote, the sheer amount of free PR that Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos got for for his, as Paul said, BS, quote, drone delivery system, unquote, is awe-inspiring media <laughs> you just got played yeah yeah and i mean the, the and i'm sure everyone listening has, has has heard about this if not just just you know google amazon prime air and you'll see it and i mean i don't know what to make of it because i mean you can't have this thing with eight exposed high-speed rotors spinning I mean, it would it would shred the family dog that would definitely go chasing it and barking at it and wouldn't see the rotor spinning and would I mean it would there'd be fur flying. It's just crazy. I I don't <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking. There are lots of well, you know, and I think even Jeff was pretty clear that uh, this was a you know long term R and D project, not something they'd definitely like to do, and it would save them a lot of money. You know, it has been used. Uh, in Haiti, uh, something similar has been used in Haiti to deliver uh, word, medical word supplies. Delivering. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So it's not comp- well, it's not out of the. Oh, look, I mean, Leo. It's technically, I think it's clearly feasible. Yeah. We have we have the we have the battery efficiency. Uh, now we have GPS that is ubiquitous. That the cost is low enough. Uh, no, I mean it's. It, it's absolutely something you could do, and wouldn't it be fun to just like look up and yeah. see these little, you know, these yeah. autonomous bots? It's so mm. it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that they got labeled drones. That I kept seeing this word drone. I thought, oh goodness, that already has yeah. so many negative connotations yeah. associated with it. That you know, you really don't want that to happen. One but. can come up with a lot of issues, but uh, it has been used in the past. There's an article in the MIT. Uh, uh, what, do they, what do they call it? The um, MIT's. The, uh, MIT tech, tech, yes, technology journal. Yeah, 
about it and about how it's been used in the past. And it's not completely uh, infeasible. There's just some big problems that would have to be solved. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, I mean, the fact that Charlie Rose said, oh, my goodness, and, you know, completely uncritically, wow. No, I mean, no. I mean, he, Paul's com- com- right. I mean, the media was saturated with this. It well, was, it's, it's, it was it's a, a great story. It was a fabulous video that they produced where yeah. it was basically, you know, a, a, a few moments in the life of, a, of our next generation drone delivery system. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God. I, I enjoyed it. I, and, you know, it was a great interview. And, uh, you know, what the hell. Now, I hate to follow that with this next story because... Okay, and first when I saw this, I thought, okay, this is it. Is it April first? No, it's not April first. Okay, how do I explain this? So this is NASA actually has a project, and I have a link to. And if if, if the PDF weren't being hosted by NASA.gov, again, I wouldn't believe it, but it is. There, they actually have. Uh, now, okay, now that's just the. The uh, I think that's it's the artist's Vol- rendering. <laughs> uh, no, that that that's a, a a Vulcan something or other. The very first image is yeah. yes, an yeah. art, an artist rendering from 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 the Star Trek world. But that's that one you're showing now is actually um, what this thing might look like. So okay, so first of all, for the listeners who aren't seeing these pictures, the article begins. A few months ago, this is in io9.com, by the way. A few months ago, physicist Harold White, who's the author of the PDF at NASA, uh, at JPL, um, or some propulsion organization. I'll I'll get to that in a second. Um, He stunned the aeronautics world when he announced that he and his team at NASA had begun work on the development of a faster-than-light, i.e. FTL, warp drive. Now, okay, we have to just pause and and give kudos here to Gene Roddenberry because, I mean, we're calling this a warp drive. It actually works by warping space-time, you know, and we had that in Star Trek in the 60s, thanks to Gene Roddenberry. So, I mean, I mean... I mean, <laughs> that was the technology. That's how the Enterprise moved at, at faster than life or, or than, than than light. So incredible. So Harold White's proposed design, an ingenious reimagining of a drive known as the, and I'm going to kind of mangle the name, I'm afraid, uh, Alcubierre. Um, he, he's a Mexican theoretical physicist, Miguel Alcubierre. Alcubier. I was trying to pronounce it before the podcast, but now I forgot. Alcubier drive may eventually result in an engine that can transport a spacecraft to the nearest star. Okay, Leo, to the nearest star in a matter of weeks. Well, we need and, that because otherwise it oh, takes too long. Exactly. All without violating Einstein's law of relativity. And, and I've said on the podcast that one of the problems I think that NASA has, and that the whole space, the the whole space process has today, is that we've been spoiled by Star Trek right. and by all of the sci-fi movies. You know, no one is able to to generate much enthusiasm 
about a slow wagon train to Mars. <laughs> it's like, who cares? You know, okay, you know, I mean, no one is going to fund that. You're just not, but, oh my God, going to Alpha Centauri in, th in a couple weeks? That's a game changer. Now we're talking. Um, so anyway, so about M Miguel, um, he's got a Wikipedia page. And back in 94, okay, so 20 years ago, um, Miguel's about 48 or 49 now. So, you know, he was at the prime of his physics inventing uh, age back then, 20 years ago. He published a paper in the Classical and Quantum Gravity Journal. So serious. That's, that's the right place for it, I think. Yeah. Yes. Theoretical <laughs> physics. Um, so Wikipedia says um, Alcubierre is best known for the for the proposal of the warp drive, mm -hmm. hyperfast travel within general relativity. And that's the key, because the problem, of course, is acceleration. You can't accelerate very quickly or because we, we have no way yet of, of a suspending inertia or, you, you know, humans are turned into goo and that's not good. Um, so, so anyway, continuing with, with Wikipedia, which appeared in the science journal Classical and Quantum Gravity. In this, he describes the Alcubierre drive, a theoretical means of traveling faster than light that does not violate the physical principle that nothing can locally travel faster than light. In this paper, he constructed a model that might transport a volume of flat space inside a bubble of curved space. Mm -hmm. So, Leo, we have a warp bubble. I yeah, mean, again, yeah. all been, all we have lots of science fiction about this, but now we actually have theory. This bubble, named as hyper-relativistic local dynamic space, is driven forward by a local expansion of space-time behind it and an opposite contraction in front of it, so that theoretically a spaceship in the middle would be placed in motion by forces generated in in the change made in space-time. Okay, now, this is 20 years ago, and nothing happened much because the theoretical amount of energy that is unfortunately required to warp space-time is quite literally astronomical. <laughs> um, Space-time, it turns out, is very stiff and actively resists being warped. Damn it. Just, I know, it's a, been a big problem. But <laughs> what happened so was, <laughs> and we have such great pictures, unfortunately, <laughs> we, we can't, we don't have no way of producing that much energy. So, um, Dr. Harold uh, White at NASA's Johnson Space Center um, was putting together a presentation recently where he was going to talk about this problem. And his PDF is titled Warp Field Mechanics 101. And if we were able to build this, this would, allow, this would transport a spacecraft to Alpha Centauri in two weeks. Perfect. Just even right. Though, even though the system, even though Alpha Centauri's um, system 
is 4.3 light years away. So we're talking about 4.3 light years in two weeks. And oh my God, that, I mean, now we're talking. Now we're cooking with gas. Yeah, exactly. If we can generate this, the insane amount of energy required. Well, and that's the breakthrough. What happened was, um, is while preparing this report, he did a sensitivity analysis of the equations and he believes he found a way of dramatically reducing the hmm. amount of energy required. Hmm. Um, and, and so in his paper, it says it takes advantage of a quirk in the cosmological code that allows for the expansion and contraction of space-time and could allow for hyper-fast travel between interstellar destinations. Essentially, the empty space behind a starship would be made to expand rapidly, pushing the craft in a forward direction. The passengers would perceive it as movement despite the complete lack of acceleration. Hmm. Um, and he said, in terms of the engine's mechanics, a spheroid object would be placed between two regions of space-time, one expanding and one contracting. A warp bubble would then be generated that moves space-time around the object, effectively repositioning it. The end result is faster-than-light travel with without the spheroid or spacecraft having to move with respect to its own local frame of reference. So, I mean, so essentially you, you, you create a bubble, this thing is in the middle, and you, you, sort of, you sort of rotate the bubble and the, the, the craft moves through, essentially is, is pushed out of our normal space-time constraints and is then able to travel without without inertia being a problem and without even something pesky as light speed being you know the the, the speed of light being a problem and just zip <laughs> wherever it wants zip. to go <laughs> zip yeah so anyway uh we'll keep our eye on this but i mean it's re it's real we'll be and around they're, for they're, a while right <laughs> they're now doing that well no but it's see the energy the, the energy problem yeah. was what which just stopped everyone cold i mean it was absolutely it required an absolutely infeasible right. amount of energy and it's been reduced by by billions of orders of magnitude i mean it's like i mean it's like been reduced if the if this if this New understanding is correct, and and what they're actually doing now is building an interferometer to test the warp bubble theory because they now believe. I mean, other people have looked at it, and NASA is look. I mean, NASA's guys have said, "Wow, this could work," <laughs> and so they're going to start with an interferometer. Uh, in order to see whether they can actually create a warp bubble with this radically lower level of energy input required. And I, I haven't had a chance to read the PDF. I just found it this morning. I tweeted it. It's already, you know, in my Twitter feed. It's in the show notes. Um, so, yeah, I, wow. <laughs> oh, this would change everything. In our lifetime, you think? Nah. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. I think so. Oh, Leo. <laughs> um, I, I was looking at this, you know, we, there was all of this, you know, of JFK's 50-year 
uh, event in the last yeah, week. Yeah. I remember where I was on that Saturday Who morning. Who doesn't? Anybody alive does, of course. Yes. And, and I didn't really understand what was going on, but I knew from the expression on my dad's face that, uh, that oh, yeah. something really bad had happened. We'd been out sailing in the bay, in San Francisco Bay, um, all day. And so we were coming back. We, 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 we came back to the dock in Marin County, and my sister and I were hosing off the, the sailboat. Dad had gone to the shore, and when he came back, someone on shore who had so so we we'd been out of touch with the news as a consequence of being sailing and dad found out when he was ashore and and walked back to the boat with i mean and i was like dad or daddy probably at the time i think i was eight yeah it would have been 50 years ago what happened um anyway so uh the point is that seeing the film from then Look how far we've come in 50 years, Leo. I think we forget how incredibly rapidly technology moves. I mean, it, you know, that was not long ago. That was 50 years. And But Steve, I know, is- you, I know you're bullish about your, you know, vitamin D and your low carb, but I don't think we're going to last another 50 years. Do you think? Well, oh my goodness. Yeah, I have a t-shirt that says future centenarian. Yeah. Right on, daddy-o. Absolutely. I don't see myself getting to 107. But it's maybe. Not gonna take 50 years. It's not going to take 50 years. Look at the Large Hadron Collider. I mean, that thing is science fiction. Have you seen the pictures of that? It's like we're building something like that. We could easily build a starship. All we need is the warp bubble. And apparently, you know, that's just down the street. I now. say start building the starship and then, you know, just if you build it, maybe the give bubble. It a big, give it a nice big engine room yeah. and we'll figure, we'll figure out, out what the to rest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we have Elon Musk, you know, so he's not going to let anything stop. We got him. Google. We do. Yeah. They, they, they seem to have a, a vision for the future. Moonshots. No, this is exciting stuff, Leo. I mean, this is what's <laughs> exciting is that now we can actually go somewhere in a reasonable amount of time. Right. And if we can do it in a couple of weeks, then life support problems are solved, inertial problems. We don't have to freeze people. We don't have to, I mean, we don't need all this other stuff we don't have. All we need is the work bubble. And apparently we're about, we're going to have that soon. The only thing I would raise at all is that if we could figure this out, not being the most advanced race ever, why haven't others visited us? Actually, I'm reading a rather daunting sci-fi series at the moment. We may which... be the only ones. Is that what yeah. you? Is that what you're going to say? That's, um, I find that hard to believe as well. When you have as many uh, planets, potential planets as you as you must have, that no life has ever developed on any of them. Uh, well, Seems for, for one thing, we really are way out on the fringes. We're right. not. I mean, we're on the wrong side of the tracks, galactically speaking. And so, you know, there may be a lot more going on. Yeah, somewhere. but if there's a warp drive, we're not as out of town as we thought. We, yeah. <laughs> we might be closer. It's the Fermi paradox, right? I mean, it's the classic yeah. paradox. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Alastair Reynolds has a series called the Revelation Space Series. It's rather dark science fiction, and I'm I'm reticent to recommend it. He's also not as good a storyteller as Peter Hamilton, yet he his books are just as big. And so I find myself sort of dragging myself through just like, yeah. oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to find out where this goes now. <laughs> but, boy, it's, it's not nearly as delightful. I'm on the third of the trilogy. 
Um, and he answers this. He and I, I can't say much more about that because I'd be spoiling it. But um, it, he he posits in this series a an entirely feasible, well, within his universe um, explanation, which is interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's not more true than the warp drive. But yeah, I mean, I don't care if nobody else has figured this out. But you're right. If other if if it's this simple, why isn't everybody doing it and yeah, visiting we, each other? Yeah, why aren't we Why aren't we getting more more uh... Looky More loose. Yeah. You, know, you got some nice real estate here. How much you want for the planet? <laughs> you know? Uh, we are going to take a break, come back with more uh, on that note. Steve Gibson I got more. has lots more to talk about. We're going to get to Bull Run 2 and a, a crack in SSL. Before we do that, though, let's talk a little bit about protecting yourself online. Our great friends at ProXPN uh, provide an open, a hosted open VPN solution for anybody who wants to do a number of things, basically wants to use the Internet the way it was intended, privately, without oversight, without snooping. An open VPN, uh, or a VPN of any kind, but open VPN is the kind that we recommend because uh, it's open source, uh, protects you by encrypting your traffic, t- putting your traffic in a, an encrypted tunnel, a brick, impermeable titanium frame around the Internet that allows you to communicate uh, without your internet service provider seeing what you're doing or the person in the coffee shop sitting next to you or the person at the hotel or on the Wi-Fi, wherever you are. Uh, that's why whenever you travel, you should use a VPN. Whenever you're uh, it, you know, worried about what your internet service provider... People always talk about Google and Facebook and the NSA. I, I'm worried about my ISP, frankly. They have very little incentive to protect my privacy and lots of reasons they might not want to. Uh, and especially now with a six-strike rule, people are getting uh, emails and letters from their uh, ISP for no apparent reason saying, knock it off. What, what are, they, are they watching everything I'm doing? Bypass geographic restrictions. Want to watch Doctor Who when it's ready? Why wait? ProXPN has uh, servers all over the world. Now, in the way, as you, I'm sure, know because you listen to the show, the way VPN works, you emerge into the public Internet wherever that other end of the VPN server is. Theirs are in Dallas, Seattle, London, Singapore, Los Angeles, New York City, and Amsterdam. It's a 2048-bit encryption key. It's a 512-bit tunnel. It's open VPN. Steve Gibson approved. And that you can try. They have a free version you can try, but for the maximum performance and speed and functionality, you're probably going to want to go with the premium service. Now, normally that premium service is $9.95 a month, or you can buy an annual plan for $75. Bucks. But if you use our offer code, SN20, you'll get 20% off. And that's not just for the first month or year, but that's forever. For the lifetime of your account, it means that ProXPN is less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan. That kind of protection for 5 bucks a month, that's well worth it. And, of course, if you're not satisfied, you can cancel within the first seven days easily. ProXPN.com slash twit to find out more. Read all about it. They have a great... Uh, you know, normally on, on mobile devices, you, you have to use PPTP. They've got an open VPN client now for Android, which is fabulous. That allows you to use open VPN on Android. They also have an iOS client. I want you to check it out. Pro X. Don't be fooled by the V in the VPN. It's proxpn.com slash twit. And the offer code is SN20 to get 20% off right now. And we thank ProXPN for sponsoring Security now giving us their support. Moving along. So I'm getting a huge amount of positive feedback from 
my Leo precipitated change in the way I used Twitter. Oh, good. I was um, feeling replying. bad about it last week. Don't, no, it's okay. Um, everyone is liking the fact that they can see my replies. I don't think anyone knew I was replying to everyone because I was using DMs. Um, the The problem I mentioned has already been fixed with that really neat filter or or that that uh, chronology of my timeline. Remember that Bitly b i t dot l y slash s g g r c all lowercase um, uh, took took us over to Simon. Parlberg's page where he was ma- monitoring the feed in real time and tying those posts to Security Now episodes because I often tweet links as I'm preparing for the show uh, just so people have access to them. And I've always been saying, oh, I just tweeted this, you know, go check out my Twitter timeline. You can find the link. The problem was if I was, since I was now using at replies, my timeline was hugely c- cluttered because. I've been so active with that. Anyway, Simon immediately fixed that. And so now we're back. So bit.ly slash SGGRC is cleaned up again, and anyone can use that to immediately find only my only my broadcasts to my Twitter community, um, which, by the way, topped 40,000 the other day. Congratulations. So I'm not, I'm not where awesome. you are, Leo, but I'm, you know, yeah, but you say good there. stuff. I say nothing. So that's, <laughs> that makes you valuable. Well... Um, I also tweeted about this. Now, okay, this is a complete diversion, but bear with me for a second. Um, last year, the radio station I use on my clock, my bedside clock radio, switched to Christmas music the day after Thanksgiving, and was playing Christmas music for a month. And I thought, no, I, I cannot have Christmas music for a month. I'm not a Grinch, but I, there actually is some Grinch song which is really nauseating and i kept hearing you know mr grinch and and all this i thought no i I just can't put up with that so as the holidays were approaching i decided to get preemptive here and needed to replace my wonderful clock radio with something um i do subscribe to xm radio i have a lifetime subscription to sirius xm um in my in my house so i was thinking okay you know that would be a possibility. And, of course, we've got Pandora. We know about Pandora and so forth. But what about the device? And what I finally realized is I had an unused iOS device. I had an iPhone 4. And, of course, I've moved to the 5. And many people, it occurred to me, have have previous versions of iPhones or older iPads that they may not be using. What I found, and the reason I bring it up, is that it's just an incredible bargain, is an amazing little dock for um, an iPhone or iPad, uh, which is also a speaker and um, a, a charging station. Uh, what I like about it is that it was, it's been discontinued, so there's existing inventory that Amazon has. It used to be $80. It was originally $79.99. Now it's $19.99 or $19.95. Um, I've got a link in the show notes if anyone's interested. It's the I love I L U V I M M one ninety. They call it the App Station Alarm Clock Stereo Speaker. Anyway, it's uh, for the price, um, it's terrific. Um, and then I went on a search a search for the right app to use on my old iOS device, and believe it or not, I can't find one. 
Um, I've I've settled on something called the clocks in the iTunes store, which is very close. And I've written to the guys or the guy who is the author and suggested that, you know, if this would be perfect if you only made the following changes. And he said that uh, several of them are on the way of the changes that I suggested. So if anyone's interested, they have an old iOS device uh, for a really amazing price. And I forgot to mention that it sounds amazing. It's a bass ported little speaker box um, that sounds fabulous. So uh, it allows you to repurpose uh, something that you may no longer be using uh, for very good price. So just a little hint for the holidays <laughs> from me. Um, and finally, I just wanted to bring to our listeners' attention two interesting Kickstarter projects. Uh, obviously, there's a huge interest in coffee. There's something on Kickstarter called the Temperfect Mug, T-E-M-P-E-R-F-E-C-T Mug. Um, the interesting thing about it is that the the guy who designed it, he's got a lot of experience uh, with with making mugs. He's been making them for years and years. He notes that coffee starts out being too hot to drink, and you then need to wait for it to cool. Um, and and in a in a thermally insulated mug, any traditional thermally insulated mug, um, there's a certain taper to the the rate at which it cools. And if you scroll down, Leo, you'll see way down, he shows the, 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 the temperature versus timelines of his solution. <laughs> this guy versus... is obsessive. <laughs> oh, no, he really is. And there, there are some beautiful, you can spend $280 um, on one of these things that are like some amazing titanium oxide uh, coating that, that you can get on one. Yep, there it is. Um, Anyway, so, so the point is that a typical thermal mug slows down the rate at which the coffee gets cool. But you have to wait for it to get down to drinkable temperature, and then it drops out of that ideal zone pretty quickly. So what he's done is he puts something with a great deal of thermal inertia directly around the coffee-containing area. And then that's vacuum insulated from the outside. So the point is, when you pour hot coffee in, the temperature of the coffee immediately drops to the sweet spot of drinking temperature because that thermal, that high thermal inertia. I don't remember like if you know what it is that he's he's wrapped around there, but that takes the heat immediately out of the coffee, bringing it down to drinking temperature. But then it holds it there for like an hour and a half. So really interesting idea. And I thought I would let our, our like listeners it. know. Yeah, I do too. Seems, I do too very much. a little bit like a perpetual motion machine or something, but if it works. Mm. Uh... No, but, but see, that's just it. It's The way it works is it rapidly drops the temperature of the coffee by heating up the, the liner that is on on immediately adjacent the coffee, and then, but that that liner holds the heat and keeps the coffee warm. Right. So it, it drops it down instead, instead of like waiting for half an hour for it to cool off enough. I have these. I, I really like. You know, you keep seeing this thing. This is a Contigo C O N T I G O, which I absolutely love. Uh, they're at gocontigo.com, um, and this thing will keep my coffee 
warm for a couple hours, but it I, I transfer it into another cup because I can't drink it out of here. It's too hot to drink. And so transferring it allows it to get cool. Um, and then the the thermos keeps it hot itself. So and it, it's a standard uh, uh, aluminum um, uh, vacuum thermos. So uh, for forty bucks you can get the regular mug. Uh, for one hundred sixty bucks you get the black oxide. And if you want titanium, it's two hundred eighty dollars. <laughs> and I'll which tell one you did you I, order? <laughs> I, I did go the titanium. Of course you though. did. A flat blue uh, black ultra hard coated mug. With an uncoated droplet logo. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Now they're saying summer of uh, next year before you get this thing. I, I'm not in a hurry. I'm, you know, I've got other stuff. But I, mean, I am so tempted. I'm convinced that the guy's got his physics right. The physics makes sense. He's clearly a perfectionist. He's got pictures. I mean, this does not look to me like one of these things that will never happen on Kickstarter. It looks like a deal. And for 40 bucks, um, you still get the same performance for, for a much a somewhat less cosmetically over-the-top mug. Uh, I love the idea of it immediately dropping it down to drinking temperature the, the ti- and then holding it. Titania doesn't perform any better. It just no. It's, it's, a, it's just a look. Pure, yeah. It's pure. The problem small. is, it's either orange, pink, or blue. If you don't spend the money. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get the orange one. What the hell? You can have the fancy one. Yeah, I'll show it to you next summer. Yeah, <laughs> bring it with your uh, coffee setup. Okay, last thing, quackiness, but again, uh, intriguing. I just wanted to make sure our listeners knew. Um, A really interesting smartphone, Bluetooth, low-energy, controlled paper airplane. (laughs) Okay. Now, what's so cool about this is that what what you're – and it's just $30. By the way, they've raised half a million almost, so they're doing all right. just going to say, the goal was 50000 They have $434,000 pledged because, as I, 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 in my notes here, I said, just the guts, ma'am, because all that you're getting is this cute little uh, armature, essentially, a little cockpit in front where the Bluetooth radio and batteries are, and a little rod that runs to the back with an, a, uh, a rudder and a propeller. And so you you, you get supply to, the plane. Yes, you supply the plane that you attach this to, and so it's like you build your own plane system. I just love it, and it's thirty dollars. So no wonder that they're going crazy pledge wise. I didn't want our listeners to miss out on it. Um, <laughs> so I think you could let's see, uh, you would Google smartphone controlled paper airplane. That was, that's in the URL of Kickstarter, smartphone-controlled paper airplane. Oh, that's the other thing. You, you, you twist your smartphone back and forth. You use the inertial sen- sensor of your smartphone in order to steer your paper airplane. Boy, just, it'd be no. fun to enter your paper airplane into some contests and let people see this thing. <laughs> yeah. It really flies. Uh, they it have really a video does. of one uh, a prototype, and it, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I don't know what the timing is. It'd be so great if it were available as a Christmas present for our listeners to give, uh, you know, their their sons and daughters. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Price is right. Trem- neat little. Oh, it, it is. It's yeah. a great little concept. I love the idea of this. Is you know, we're o- we're we're only going to give you and sell you the part you can't make, and you know, anyone can fold paper, and so you know, have at it. F- you know, create. I mean, it like it brings paper airplanes back to life. Remember that? You probably, uh, we're of the same vintage. You probably had that book. 
Remember yep. they? Yeah, I know the book. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's nodding. Yeah, we know that book. Uh, that was very popular in uh, in our youth. It was. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if they still. I should look. I'm going to look on Amazon. Oh, it's got to be around. You think it's not out of print? So, speaking of bringing things back to life, um, I got a really nice note from a uh, Caleb Allen that I wanted to share with our listeners. He's in Turlock, California, a listener himself. And he said, Spinrite helping elementary school children read. Um, This is something I I hadn't seen before. He said, Dear Steve, I work at a small, poor elementary school district in California's Central Valley. That's where Turlock is, sure enough. And he said, about two years ago, I convinced my boss to purchase a Spinrite site license. Um, I'm sorry, to purchase a site license for Spinrite 6 to use in our shop after I heard about it on Security Now. Last week, and this he sent to me, by the way, on Halloween on on October 31st, so just about a month ago. Last week, one of our librarians told me of a problem where her library kiosk terminals were taking five to seven minutes to log on. It was so bad that most school children, many of whom were only given five to seven minutes to run to the library at all, just abandoned the PCs. This was a huge problem because these PCs are how the students look up book titles in the subjects they're interested in. So I guess, I, you know, back when I was in high school, we had a card catalog, but I, obviously that's all gone online now, as you would imagine. So he said, after an hour or so, poking around the multi-point server install, he said in parens, the kiosks are terminals all running off one host machine, is that I took it back to the shop for further work. The message stated that the user profile service was busy. I scoured the Microsoft network and internet forums trying to find a solution to the problem. Finally, in desperation, on the off chance that the problem might be hard drive related, I ran Spinrite on level four over the weekend. On Monday morning, I came in and tested the PC and the login popped right up and took me to the desktop. I returned it to the library, and now four students at a time are able to do research and look up books thanks to Spinrite. As a poor district, we've used Spinrite for a whole host of problems. It's gotten to the point where, in most cases, we just run Spinrite on level two before trying anything else. It's helped us keep our existing equipment running in the sometimes chaotic environment of elementary school classrooms. Kids are rough on the equipment, and our hard drives take a beating. With Spinrite's help, we've, de- we've decreased downtime, kept older equipment running, and recovered vital files such as grades, parent reports, and special education evaluations. I don't know if a student in our district will someday be inspired because they had access to a PC we've gotten running again with Spinrite, but I'd like to think so. Thank you so much for a great product, Caleb. How nice. And wow, thanks for the great uh, summary and report. And thanks to Patterson, who found it, the Great International Paper Airplane Book, first Uh, published in 1967, written by, I didn't know this, Jerry Mander, who uh, went on to write some other very interesting uh, books, including Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. Uh, 
it's quite for which he's quite well known. But well, this, he's very controversial politically now too. Yes, course. that's right. Um, yeah. The Great International Paper Airplane Book. It was based on the uh, Scientific American, uh, you know, uh, contest. The uh, twenty of the best entrants from the first International Paper Airplane Contest, sponsored by Scientific American. There were eleven thousand eight hundred fifty-one entrants, but this is this is wow. the best twenty. Now, if you look for paper airplane books, there are a lot more, but this is the one that I'm nostalgic about because uh, remember that little helicopter one? Yeah, you, it would spin. I yes. made all twenty. There was a ring one that was anyway. This apparently is out of print, but boy, wasn't that a great book? <laughs> I think everybody uh, over probably probably over fifty will will remember this. Well, and there it is, available used for a dollar fifteen. Yeah, you so, can get it. You know, yeah, plus shipping. Yeah. yeah, I might, I might just buy this just to have it. This was a classic. Yeah, Leo, believe me, when you love a PDPH, you will end up buying a lot of things just to have them, <laughs> just because they're uh, classics. Uh, you know, one yeah. thing though, there's no audible edition of this book. I don't believe anyway. <laughs> that would be kind of funny. Fold point A. To point B. Yeah, that's, that, this book in particular probably does not uh, uh, make, make itself very available to no, the audio, to the no. Audible uh, yeah. style. However, Audible does have 150,000 other wonderful titles. Uh, now, you know, that's, there probably aren't any programming books there, but there are a lot of books about technology. In fact, I just uh, bought a bunch of them because I have a lot of catching up to do. I'm hoping... Uh, maybe over the holidays I'll be able to do a little bit of reading. For instance, I I just got the uh, book about Amazon uh, by uh, by the, uh, Brad Stone. It's called The Everything Store. I just got Nick Bilton's uh, book about Twitter, Hatching Twitter. Um, and, and and the next one I'm going to pick up is uh, this this uh, oh, what's it called? Um, it's the one. Um, that talks about the iPhone. It's called Dogfight. This is, this is maybe now you can get this for free right now. This is one I think anybody who listens to these shows would be very interested in. Fred Vogelstein is a writer uh, for Wired. I've read excerpts from it, and I've talked. Many of my friends have read it and say it's really great. Uh, Renee Ritchie was just talking about it yesterday. Dogfight: How Apple and Google went to war and started a revolution. And the excerpt I read was the story of Steve Jobs. Apple iPhone keynote in 2007 where they announced the iPhone and the people who had made it and uh, just wow I cannot wait to read this so I got a deal for you how about reading it or I guess you should say listening to it for free you can by joining audible the first month's free the first book's free cancel any time in the first 30 days you'll pay nothing uh, but you will get to keep the book the only problem and we face this all the time is <laughs> what book there's so many choices. There's so many wonderful books at audible.com, 150,000 titles. Uh, I don't know where you're going to start. Maybe you like Tom Clancy, the new Tom Clancy novels there, or maybe you like uh, science fiction. All our Peter F. Hamilton books are there. We love Peter F. Hamilton. Um, Lincoln's Words at Gettysburg. There are so many classics. Uh, uh I just, I, you know, if you like history, if you like fiction, if you like biography, whatever kind of reading you like, this is, you'll find it all at Audible. And listening, I don't know, there's so many times I can't read, I can't hold a book. I love to read. And as, at this point, I no longer even buy books. I listen to everything because it's just so great when you're in the car, when you're at the gym, 
when you're walking the dog or doing the dishes. Try it now. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You'll be signing up for the gold account. First month's free. First book's free. Cancel at any time. And uh, the book is yours to keep. The Rolling Stones Discover America, the inside story of their American tour. Oh, I'd lo- I love this stuff. I like to. I do a lot of rock and roll um, stuff. Graham Nash's book is supposed to be amazing. Wild Tales, a rock and roll life. Of course, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, I, I was just talking to somebody who listened to this. It says, fantastic. I bet you you'll find something you can't wait to listen to. You get in the car and spend an extra 15 minutes driving around the block just to hear the next chapter. <laughs> Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them for their support of security now. What do you got there? So that's, I was just checking my Twitter feed on my little mini while yeah, you yeah, were talking. Yeah. And I have an update about uh, <laughs> about coffee. Then we'll get to Bull Run, I promise everyone. So this was tweeted by ChemGuy60223. That sounds like a zip code maybe. Um, and so he sent two tweets. Uh, he says, Steve, for an alternative to your coffee temp controller, check out Coffee Julie's, J-O-U-L-I-E-S, Available on on Amazon now. They don't work. He says, I'm... Huh? They don't work. Oh. Well, I've used them for uh, whiskey. (laughs) Okay. I don't think that's quite the right technology, Leo. He says, I'm a... He says, I'm a chemist. Of course, his his Twitter handle is ChemGuy. Yeah. He says, I'm a chemist and have these. Use as a class demo. They really work. Uses a phase change material to absorb slash release heat at right. the proper temperature. So they're little so, metal uh, beans that go in your coffee. Um, this, people do these for whiskey as well to keep whiskey cool without watering uh, it down. Get the idea? Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, the people I know have used these have not been crazy about this as a solution. So Yeah, I don't want any beans. I want, uh, you know. I'm, I, I'm I, I, we, we both bought that mug if they, if they put it out. If they don't, we'll try the Julie's. Um, I've been I've been aware of these for some time. I'm I'm not convinced they uh, they do the job. Anybody in the chat room has a better has experience. I mean, there's the guy on Twitter. He's a chemist. Yeah. No. The the, the theory works, and so he's probably using it in order to demonstrate same idea uh, that concept in his classroom. Right. It's a it's a heat an energy storage yeah. device. You know, as we were, it may be. Uh, I wonder if his handle is a zip code. That would be Chicago area, right? Six, what is it? Six? 60223, he said. 60223. Yeah, Midwest somewhere. Or maybe it's a chemical something. That's what I would guess. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. My uh, my uh, good, uh, my college roommate and good friend just passed away at the age of uh, 56. Oh, how, why? Yeah, so Bill young, Keen. Leo. I know, so young. Pancreatitis, it was uh, Ooh, unexpected. Yeah. Uh, but he was the guy in Oregon for food safety. Uh, and tracked down many famous cases of, uh, of food safety. And, uh, you know, uh, he was the guy who got almonds uh, irradiated for the future. But the main, main reason I thought about this is because his license plate was, uh, and I don't know if anybody will recognize this, 0157H7, which is the deadliest strain of E. coli. <laughs> and a common, a common culprit in foodborne illness. 
what a happy plate. <laughs> Bill was quite the character. He, when we were in college, he used to sell uh, T-shirts with parasites. Uh, he had a, a picture of uh, a fry cook, and and it said, "How would you like your eggs?" And um, and the all the eggs were uh, parasite uh, eggs that you know would were common in human parasite infections. So it's not a best-selling T-shirt, but yeah, that one was one that ra- raised eyebrows. <laughs> Bill was a great man and uh, a, a real loss. So uh, Bill Keen, wow. he uh, wow. a very young uh, fella, uh, but uh, boy, he saved a lot of lives. So he he had a he had a good uh, a good life. But in better news, continuing. Oh yeah, there's well, an article about him in USA Today. I didn't see that. That's good. Wow. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so Bull Run. Um, what is Bull Run? Bull Run is the code name, and boy, we've been still learning about code names, creative code names that the NSA generates like crazy in the last few months, ever since uh, Edward Snowden uh, dropped the first of many bombs. Uh, Bull Run surfaced about a month ago uh, in another release of slides, and there was a slide that uh, referred to the Bull Run Project, and it raised a lot of concern because it it discussed the NSA's active work to decrypt the Internet's encryption. And all the headlines that flashed were, you know, NSA breaks Internet encryption. And, of course, you know, my my take at the time and even now is, well, okay, you know, we, as as Bruce Schneier has said, trust the math, and we do trust the math. But but when a cryptographer sees that, and the cryptographer spends his life thinking about these problems, it creates a uh, a, a psychological dilemma. It's well, okay, if that's true, and. I, a cryptographer, pride myself in teaching cryptography and knowing everything there is to know about cryptography. How do I, how do I square that? And so that's exactly what Matthew Green did uh, in his latest blog on Monday, December 2nd, two days ago. Uh, his blog posting is, he, he posts in, CryptographyEngineering.com is his site, and his blog post was "How Does NSA Break SSL?" Um, and so he's been bugged about this briefing sheet, um, and but has been pulled away. He had intended to spend some more time on this, but has been pulled away by his own project, which has been taking up his time. Anyone looking at his Twitter feed can see that he's talking about ZeroCoin, which he's very excited about. He's come up with a, a, an alternative virtual currency technology, not Bitcoin, not Litecoin, but ZeroCoin, which I it's on my radar and I just haven't gotten into it yet because it's still very much evolving. So I'm going to wait for it to settle down and then we'll doubtless talk about it. Um, so Matt starts out by explaining. He said, Quote, first, I'm well aware that NSA can install malware on your computer and pwn any cryptography you choose. That doesn't interest me at all for the simple reason that it doesn't scale well. 
The NSA can do this to you, but they can't do it for an entire population. And that's what really concerns me about the recent leaks. The possibility that the NSA is breaking encryption for the purpose of mass surveillance, which of course is an entirely different problem. So what he does is to to essentially brainstorm um, first sort of reasonable things and then a little bit later, admittedly, more of the tinfoil hat sort of things. So so let's we'll follow along a little bit and talk about this. The first up uh, that, that Matt looks at is the concept of just outright theft or acquisition somehow of the raw RSA keys. Um, and, and of course, this approach that this, uh, you know, just the NSA getting keys is so obvious and easy that it's somewhat difficult to imagine the NSA spending much effort or resources on hyper-sophisticated attacks because, you know, we know from from reports that have been published that uh, GCHQ in Britain and our own U.S. NSA are completely comfortable and have uh, suborned U.S. providers uh, overseas and even within the U.S., they've demonstrated a willingness to obtain SSL keys using their subpoena powers and gag orders. Um, and, you know, we, I mean, we, one, one of the observations we've made is the insane number of certificate authorities that, uh, that our browsers trust. So, you know, any of those are able to mint SSL keys on demand and who's to say that that hasn't happened so you know so unfortunately the whole the whole public key infrastructure is a fundamental weakness that we talk about often on this show because that's one of the things we talk about is fundamental weaknesses and you know that's like first and foremost which he talks about um now the other thing that's a little bit of a concern is the idea of as Matt puts it, suborning hardware encryption chips. The New York Times recently uh, ran a story where they 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 their their headline was "Documents Reveal NSA Campaign Against Encryption," and and the the allusions in the slides which the New York Times showed, which we also covered at the time on the podcast, um, noted that. A significant fraction of encrypted traffic on the Internet is produced by hardware devices, such as SSL terminators or accelerators. Um, the, the slide that we talked about a week or two ago with, with, with Google, it showed that before anything went into their own network, there were um, S, there, there was a... a Uh, on their border was SSL equipment well likely to be hardware in order to speed this up. SSL accelerators are often what companies use on their front end of their networks to essentially deal with the, the otherwise high computing cost of negotiating a public key with all of the people connecting to their site. And those use hardware chips. Those hardware chips come from somewhere. So the question is, okay, 
how do you what does what suborning a hardware encryption chip mean? And so in brainstorming, Matt su- su- suggests, he says, the obvious guess is that each chip encrypts and exfiltrates bits of the session key via, quote, random, unquote, fields, such as initialization vectors and handshake nonces. Indeed, Matt writes, this is relatively easy to implement on an opaque hardware device. The interesting question is how one ensures these back doors can only be exploited by the NSA and not by rival intelligence agencies. So what, he, what he's positing there is that, that if the hardware performs the entire handshake, the, the whole protocol setup, and you want that all in hardware because that's where you get the, you get the performance boost, then things like initialization vectors, which, abs, you know, which should be um, one-time use nonces, they can be publicly known, but they have to always be unique, and handshake nonces, which exist in the protocol, if some of the bits from the session key were, for example, scrambled and stuck in the nonces, an observer looking at the packets would think everything was fine unless you really analyze the, the every detail of the handshake looking for for cross-item correlation. Um, but if the NSA knew that such and such a chip were used, or if just the NSA knew that chips were out there which, which d- misbehaved in ways that they had participated in engineering, then that could immediately remove, for example, half of the session key length, dropping it from 128 to 64, which is then much more feasible to brute force. So we don't know that that's not going on, but we ab- apparently we have evidence that the NSA has been involved in this sort of pressure against encryption chips. And Matt suggests, if so, this is how it might be done. And it's chilling. And of course, he's right. It, it isn't at all clear how you prevent that from being... I mean, this is exactly the kind of backdoor which which people in the know are worried that the NSA might have installed and be an entirely requ- uh, relying on the secrecy of it not being broadly known. The problem is once it's discovered, if it hasn't been discovered by others, once it's discovered, then you know, all of this hardware that's out there is compromised. So that's, you know, horrifying. And, you know, if true. So, yikes. Next class of attacks against SSL could be side channel attacks. Um, You know, we've we've talked often about various sorts of side channel attacks. Something like the operating time, the resource consumption, cache timing, or radio frequency emissions. Um, are all things that have been demonstrated to leak information. Um, of course, all of those require, typically require proximity. I mean, something like cache timing, you really can't determine the cache timing at the other end of a connection or any, you know, outside the machine at all. But Matt notes that 
anytime you virtualize uh, TLS servers, SSL servers in a cloud setting, and if spyware is able to be to be running in a virtual process on the same hardware, then it's sharing hardware resources. And it's entirely feasible to imagine then that malware could be watching the shared cache of the processor in order to in order to find weaknesses and try to determine the the keys that are in use. So those are, you know, very chilling. It's one of the reasons, actually, that I was very happy with the work that Dan Bernstein had done on the elliptic curve crypto that I chose for the uh, the squirrel, the SQRL um, authentication and lo- login technology, because he really verified his algorithm specifically guarantees that no secret information is involved in is is involved in any timing or or um, memory access at all. So all of the memory accesses that are done and all, any timing decisions branches never involve anything that is supposed to be a secret. So you know that's one of the ways you you work to protect side channel attacks. But fundamentally, we're looking at at a at a, at a just a problem with the implementation of cryptography on on platforms that are doing other things at the same time as crypto. So the argument is that's one reason that you would use hardware is that by encapsulating, for example, the entire SSL handshake in a single chip, then nothing else can get to it. Except as we just saw, if the NSA gets to the chip, then we're back having a problem. So, you know, the problem is all of our technology is arguably sensitive to many different types of attacks. Uh, And another one that we've talked about is weak random number generators, which Matt brings up again. And he says, you know, you know, weak random number generators are a problem because the crypto that we're using absolutely depends upon the quality of random number generators. We use those um, on the client side during the RSA handshake. Uh, we've, we've done a podcast about how SSL handshake works. The first thing that happens is the client generates a, a random value, which it sends to the server um, as, as part of its initial uh, client hello uh, SSL handshake. And that absolutely has to be um, random. It's called the pre-master secret. Um, and if an attacker is able to predict the output of that client's random number generator, then it's possible to decrypt the entire session from, from that point. Um, we also use client and server side randomness as part of the Diffie-Hillman handshake. Both sides, remember, generate a, a, as random a number as they can, and then they they use a a variant of that or something derived from that, which they exchange with each other. And when they each receive what the other sent, they're able to combine that and arrive at a shared secret, which they then use from then on. But that is extremely sensitive to the randomness of that the content that they're each generating. And if either one of them is not sufficiently random, that can compromise the 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 handshake technology. And finally, 
long-term generation of random numbers. We've already seen where this has been a problem. For example, the generation of RSA keys that are used in server certificates. Remember that the EFF has a project called the, the EFF SSL Observatory. And what we found, we the industry found, to our shock was that there was actually duplication of, of private keys among many um, online services. They independently arose at certificates that were using the same private key because they were all using, I hate to think maybe the B-safe random number generator from RSA that was by default using a known buggy random number generator. Thus, the, the prime numbers that they were arriving at, they thinking that they were pseudo-random, uh, weren't as pseudo-random as they believed. The conse consequence was that there was a lot of collision among these certificates. And so that's certainly worrying. Thus, we really do need strong random number generators. And though there's no proof of it, there is some reason to believe that the NSA was acting in order to get a bad random number generator out into the NIST specification. And even though everyone who knew anything thought nobody would ever use this. Turns out that that was the default random number generator in RSA's Be Safe library, uh, you know, across their entire product suite. Why uh, not? Which they you know, make it easy. <laughs> God. Everybody yeah, already uh, did just, all the work. You know, it's just... Just unbelievable. Yeah. Kind of and then lastly, he, he suggests that there could be, even though we've all fallen in love with perfect forward secrecy... Uh, for good reason, um, there could be esoteric weaknesses in perfect forward secrecy systems. Um, he notes that one of the things which um, SSL does in order to minimize the burden of establishing the initial handshake secret is session resumption. We talked about that often too. The idea is that when the endpoints already have when the endpoints have previously agreed on a set of of public key based parameters the client will offer a um, essentially a, a ticket of, of that session to the server when the client notices it's connecting to the same server it had connected to before. If the server is caching its sessions, then it'll look up, it'll use that session ticket to find the, um, the, ma the matching ticket and say, oh, and, and basically short circuit the most time-consuming process. Now, the problem is that while that's neat, if you're just connecting two machines... What do you do if you're connecting to a server farm? Now the problem is the client could be reestablishing a connection with a different machine in a huge server farm. So now you've got to come up with a way essentially of moving all of the session information and session tickets out to the front where there, there's some way for for, there's some way to sort of offload that from all the individual servers. And it turns out it just creates a huge architectural headache for for people who are trying to use resumption tickets, and it can be a problem. Um, and then 
uh, Matt also notes that the Diffie-Hellman parameters, which are increasingly being used because we're all liking Diffie-Hellman as opposed to RSA for our for our crypto, they must be chosen with care. That is, you know, the so-called elliptic curve parameters must be chosen with care, and that a the uh, using curves which are not safe. Um, can quickly destroy the entire system's security. So, you know, in in general, Diffie-Hellman is fragile and requires proper behavior from both ends uh, of the handshake for reasons that we've already talked about. So, you know, those are sort of the sort of the the, the standard. You know, not going to raise any eyebrow sorts of problems, and it's a summary of the of the issues that we've talked about throughout the the podcast in the past. Under what Matt considers tinfoil hat concerns, um, or maybe regard them as thought experiments, you know, the what if sort of stuff, he talks about just what about breaking RSA keys? Um, And Matt notes in his blog, he says, there's a persistent rumor in our field that NSA is cracking 1024-bit RSA keys. He says, it's doubtful this rumor stems from any real knowledge of NSA operations. More likely, it's driven by the fact that cracking 1024-bit keys is highly feasible for an organization with NSA's resources. Okay, now wait a minute. Highly feasible. Um, To get a calibration on that, back in 03, so 10 years ago, a decade ago, Encryption researchers Shamir, the S of RSA, and Traumer estimated it would cost a hundred. I'm sorry, ten million dollars for a purpose-built machine that could factor one 1024-bit key per year. Okay, but that was ten years ago. An updated estimate this year in in 2013, uh, Traumer re-looked at this and estimated that the numbers would be about a million dollars for a cost to factor to for a machine to factor 1024-bit keys in a hardware. Um, and it might be significantly lower, which of course is pocket change for the NSA. But remember, that's a year. So we're still talking about a really substantial amount of work to do this. And But, but anyway, so summing it up, Matt says, why is this considered tinfoil hat? And and bringing it sort of back to some reality, he says, because as far as we know, nobody's ever done it, not even once, not even at 1024 bits. So all the entire crypto community has are rough guesses. He says, since it's never been done, guesses could be dramatically too high or dramatically too low. He says, and 1024-bit RSA keys, he notes that 1024-bit RSA keys are now being rapidly phased out. You know, for example, when I renewed my certs, they were and went to EV certs, uh, what, about two years ago, because I'm about to come up to renewing them again. Uh, I went to 2048. In fact, that was the default that DigiKey was then recommending. And of course, Google famously uh, updated all of their uh, connection technology 
to 2048-bit ahead of their end-of-year deadline, which is what they were planning. So, and we do know, what is it, 768-bit keys have been cracked. But remember that this this scales exponentially. So 1024-bit is not, you know, one-third harder than 768. It is, it is dramatically, exponentially harder. And we've already doubled the key length to 2048. So everyone believes that, you know, we're, we're secure and are going to be. Um, okay, what about RC4? Uh, you know, in this is still in tinfoil, tinfoil hat mode, Matt feels, the notion of cracking RC4. So it turns out that as, and we've talked about cipher suites often, um, there's a large suite of ciphers available. Servers have their batch, clients have their batch, and they negotiate to find the strongest. Or really, what happens is the client give, gives the server the dump of all it knows about, and from those, from among those, the server cho- chooses in the order it wishes what it wants. And so, for example, GRC, my site had been using RC4 until a few weeks ago because it was the only one that would would rate me as well as I wanted to be over on SSL Labs. I didn't see any danger in it. And, you know, Matt argues that there is really no danger. But in tinfoil hat mode, he also notes that, first of all, 50% of all HTTPS traffic is still being secured with what he refers to as creaky old RC4. Um, And admittedly, it's starting to show its age. Uh, Remember that the attack that we covered a few months ago was done by um, some of the uh, RSA guys where the the way RC4 works is it uses a, a scrambling algorithm where it has two arrays of of 256 bytes, the key sort of pre-scrambles the array and it, and it, and it, RC4 generates a pseudo-random bit stream coming from the dynamic continually, continual scrambling of the array. So the idea is that it gets better as it goes along, but the researchers discovered if they really looked more carefully at exactly the, the the way the arrays were being scrambled, there was more, there was a greater lack of randomness among the, among the choices that the system made than they previously believed. So they basically, they pushed the original known weakness out further and further worried everybody about the strength of RC4. Still not to the point that it would be a real problem, but, but, worrisome. And so Matt writes that we don't know of any attack that would allow the NSA to usefully crack RC4, even given all of this. With all these weaknesses, there still isn't a way, as far as we know, to usefully crack it. And he says the, the known techniques require an attacker to collect thousands or millions of cipher texts that are either A, encrypted with related keys, um, and that was the WEP problem that was one of the reasons we did abandon the WEP Wi-Fi protocol, or B, 
to contain the same plain text. And Matt reminds us that the best-known attack against SSL um, using RC4 takes this same plain text approach. It requires the victim to establish billions of sessions. This is the beast attack, and it's why beast was really never anything to worry about. And even then, it only recovers fixed plain text elements like cookies or passwords occurring at the front of these billions of identical queries that browsers make. So it was at worst a theoretical attack, um, and it's why I kept RC4 uh, where I had it. Now I've moved it down, and we're using perfect forward secrecy. And, of course, everybody else is famously moving to that very rapidly because Beast is just no uh, – actually, Beast, I'm sorry. Beast was the the cipher block chaining problem, um, the, the – uh, it was a crime, I think, that was the RC4 attack. Anyway, so um, fundamentally, in tin, fo- in, tin, in tin foil hat mode, we could argue that RC4, you know, is crackable. But practically, you know, Matt's feeling is, eh, you know, not so much. And certainly it's in the process of, of, of leaving. And then just out of the blue, he says, well, you know, if we're going to have our tin foil hat on, how about, you know, some sort of other side channel attack, something that, you know, we can't imagine or don't know about because fundamentally our cipher technology is vulnerable to those. So if you like tinfoil, you know, you like the idea that maybe there's some way of, of, of leaking secret information that, that we haven't picked up on, but that the NSA knows. So, and then finally, of course, does the NSA have secret and completely surprising quantum computing capabilities? Well, nobody thinks so. I mean, nobody seriously in, in academia believes that, that, they're, that the NSA is that far ahead of us. And it, they would have to be radically far ahead in order to have, you know, actual quantum computing technology to, to crack crypto. But, you know, if we have our tinfoil hats on, who knows? And, you know, and, and I just note that with all of the certificate authorities that our browsers now trust, how do we know that one of them isn't the NSA? I mean, literally a, a covert from the beginning certificate authority that is wholly co-opted. I mean, that, that actually is an NSA front and has a convincing set of credentials and is doing business um, and all of the browser vendors believe it's, you know, whomever, and it's not. I mean, that's, if if I were the NSA, uh, that's one of the things I would do. So I hope I just didn't give away one of their secrets. Um, <laughs> oh, do you really? <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if it were the I, Hong Kong post office? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, I would imagine it's something really hiding in plain sight, actually. Yeah, yeah. But... Matt wraps up by saying that one bright spot is that the NSA uh, GCHQ disclosure, the ones that the one this disclosure that we saw, does describe their present capabilities as quote extremely fragile. So that implies that the things we are already doing have significantly changed the game for them. I, and I think that makes absolute sense. I, I think that that they were noting that 
Yes, there were things they could do, but those were fragile, meaning that a whole bunch of things had to come together in just the right way for them to be able to decrypt. And that might have been storing up traffic and then arranging to get an expired key, um, you know, that, that we've talked about on the podcast. That kind of thing, the idea being that they recognized if with the world switched to perfect forward secrecy so that you could no longer determine what the session key was from use, use the server's private key to decrypt the session key um, because of, of using ephemeral Diffie-Hellman handshake, all of that that they were using was then obsolete. Yeah. And, you know, their fragile system was hurt. So I, I'm there's no question in my mind that deep within the bowels of the NSA, um, they are they're not happy about, you know, essentially the 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 upshot from what uh Snowden did has clearly mobilized the entire security industry uh to speed up our game, basically take this much more seriously than they were. And because what the NSA was doing was arguably fragile, you know, doing things like, you know, tapping Google's unencrypted links between data centers, well, Google's going to fix that. So that's a perfect example of something fragile, which has now been taken out of their grasp. I think this was all in response to that in the first place, that they were most fear, that the thing they were really afraid of was the already widespread use of encryption and so forth, and that they were staring at a dark internet. And while they had great capabilities with analog circuitry and telephones, they didn't have that same kind of capability. Well, but, and, but we were also complacent. I mean, you know, Google assumed that their private fiber was secure. They, that, yeah. that, they made that assumption. And, and it turns out, I mean, so we, we were all just sort of didn't recognize what was going on. So, and that's the other thing too, that the Snowden leaks have been so powerful because it hasn't been one fact that got out. It's been a tsunami of revelations about just how aggressive the NSA's policies have been and it, which has touched every corner of the security industry and has, has said to people, okay, you know, we need to change things. Yeah. Well, now what? You know, now what are they going to do? Um, Leo, there isn't anything they can do. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have to. They're they're going to have to appeal to the law. They're, they're going to have to end up using subpoena powers and national security letters in order to get the things they need. They're going to have to demand the keys from um, from companies or from the companies those companies trust, meaning the certificate authorities. I don't see any other solution, and so that means we need to adopt technologies that are purely that are entirely TNO. We need to trust no one. You know that is one of the fundamental concepts of my squirrel uh, login technology. Is there is no third party. You uh, it is fully TNO. You are trusting no one else. Unfortunately, the entire internet infrastructure with websites means we have to trust the certificate authority. So that's its point of weakness. That's where the NSA will go. Well, you've been right on all along with your, uh, you know, calculations about how these things are working. So uh, it's because it's it's ultimately it's technology driven. Yeah, and you know we understand technology. Yeah, if you understand how it works, it's it's apparent where 
the attack surface must be. Yeah. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. Yeah, that's the place where you could find uh, Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You can also find all his freebies, his perfect paper passwords, uh, all the great things he does. Um, and while you're there, the 16 kilobit version of the audio, the smallest audio made available, and a full transcript so you can read and search. It's very helpful. I was searching the other day for something you mentioned. And because all those transcripts are there and online and yes. Google, Google index, yes. indexes them, it's very easy to find what you need uh, through those transcripts. So thank you for doing that. We have full quality audio and video available at our website, twit.tv slash sn for security. Now, and of course, wherever net, netcasts are aggregated, we have feeds for all of those uh, as well. Uh, if you Are you going to do Q&A next week? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> if you've got questions for Steve, at some point we will do a Q&A. Go to grc.com slash feedback. Do not attempt to question him in any other form. Actually, I guess you're, you're, you're answering people on Twitter, so. I am. And, I mean, it's 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 a mixed blessing. I love uh, I love the social network that we've established. I like being able to answer people. I I feel a little bit of an obligation to do that, so sometimes it's a little disruptive when I'm deep in brain mode, but I know people will understand if I don't get back to them immediately. Um, and for what it's worth, I mean, please do continue submitting questions to uh, grc.com slash feedback. Um, I would love to do a QA. and uh, a uh, We're driven by the news, and so if the news overwhelms us, we got to cover the news, uh, but we always have our listeners' questions to fall back on. Right on. Yeah, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of what I talk about now during the week it is coming to me in real time through, through Twitter. the Twitter. Yeah. Yes. Tw well, in, in that case, let's mention that you are at SGGRC on Twitter. Oh, by the way, Leo, somebody, just for some reason, they checked, to, they, they, they did a search of posts to at SGRC. Do not do that. <laughs> it turns out people have been mistweeting me to at SGRC, and there's a whole collection of people that I never saw and I never replied to. So I, if you don't, don't use that. Use SG, as in obviously Steve Gibson, GRC, Gibson Research Corporation, SGGRC. SGGRC. And look for the guy in the fancy derby <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Nancy, my sister, took that of me over the holidays oh, when I was up there a picture. couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. the scarf and the beret. Yep. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next, uh, next Wednesday. We do this at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1900 UTC every Wednesday live. If you want to join us live, visit through the chat room. Um, and next year we'll be switching to Tuesday at 1 p.m. Uh, uh, Pacific time. 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. That starts January 7th. So uh, be prepared. Be aware. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.